0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom, everybody. I want to w- welcome everybody online as well, watching through our uh, YouTube uh, uh, live stream channel. Uh, welcome you as well. I know we have a lot, of, a large number of people watching online and uh, not back here yet in person, so I want to welcome you as well. And I want to encourage all the children here, either who are here in this sanctuary or, or who are watching online to... Uh, grab some a pencil and paper or, or crayons or, or markers uh, and if you're old enough to take notes on what you're hearing and you can discuss it afterwards with your parents or, or if, you're, if you can't take the notes to uh, draw a picture of something that you're hearing uh, in the message that will uh, remind you uh, of what we're talking about and then we can, you can discuss that afterwards as well and I wish all the fathers a happy Father's Day tomorrow uh, and, and then finally I, I also uh, I want to encourage us to be praying for uh, Christopher Eric Ward, who, who gave his testimony earlier. He's leaving. Today's his last day here in Dallas, uh, and he's moving full-time permanently uh, to the nation of Turkey, where God has called him as, as a full-time missionary uh, to uh, proclaim the gospel. Uh, to, to uh, our, our uh, Turkish uh, brothers and sisters there uh, that they may come to the Lord. Turkey is like 99.9% Muslim. There's very few believers in the land. It's, it's primarily an unreached area. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so the, the Lord has sovereignly called uh, Eric there uh, and, and we are standing with him and, and delighted that the Lord has, has his calling on his life, that he's responding in obedience, uh, like like Abraham going out to a uh, new land that he does not know and a language he does not know uh, and a people that are foreign uh, and just obeying the Lord. Uh, and so please pick up his prayer letter which is on the back table as you walk out the door uh, next to the sound booth there's his prayer letter there. You can be praying for him as the Lord leads you. You can be supporting him financially uh, and if you're able to come to his uh, 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 commissioning uh, ceremony tonight. At, at, there's a church, that, I think the can see Eric for information afterwards, tonight at 7.30 p.m. I think it's in Irving, uh, that, that, the, the church there, where he's going to have a commissioning ceremony. So if you're able to do that, please talk to Eric afterwards. He'll, he'll give you uh, the details. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, we're in a new series. We started last week uh, on the book of Philippians. So today's part two. Uh, today, we're going to look at the, the second chapter of Philippians uh, and the, the secret of humility. So turn with me, if you can, to Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 to 11. Uh, and, 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 the, and the scripture says this, uh, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Messiah, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make, Paul says, and make my joy complete, by being like minded, uh, having the same love, being in one spirit and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that the Messiah Yeshua had And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Magnificent passage. This passage beautifully describes uh, one of the irreducible core beliefs of the Messianic faith, the doctrine of the Incarnation. It's a belief that's unique to the Messianic faith of all the religions of the world, the belief that the eternal, infinite God became a human being, a Messiah, Yeshua, a physical, a physical, limited, vulnerable, killable, mortal man in time and in space, in history, Uh, in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah, who is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Now the implications of this doctrine of the incarnation are vast and in multitude, and this chapter here, Philippians two, is perhaps the classic statement of this high doctrine, and it's just astounding. It's like a it's like nosebleed high a Christological biblical doctrine, beautifully articulated here. And by the way, it's written, if you look at the text, it's written in the form of a hymn. It's even more clear in the Greek. It's written in the form of a hymn. It's a very old hymn you know, that was sung in, and then in the earliest, most ancient messianic communities. And it was widely known and used at the time of Paul. So I want you to think about the implications of this. Paul wrote Philippians around the year 60, 60 AD. Just 30 years after the death and resurrection of Messiah. And already by that time, just 30 years later, this hymn, exalting the incarnation of Yeshua as the divine Messiah, was already being well-spread and circulated throughout the believing world. So the deity of Messiah was not a later invention by, by Gentile Christians, as some liberal critics try to claim. Rather, it was a core foundational conviction of the Messianic Jewish community from the very start. And Paul is emphasizing this doctrine of the incarnation here in Philippians. Why? In order to address a problem in that congregation. And he writes it in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 2. If there's any encouragement with you being united with Messiah, if any comfort by his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete. How? By being of one spirit and one mind. Paul is saying, I want unity here in the body. And the reason he's exhorting them here to unity and being of one mind, uh, as we're going to see in the rest of the the book of Philippians, is there's divisions in the congregation. Uh, There there were key leaders who were divided uh, and in conflict and in contention. In a word, there was fighting. So Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Messiah, any comfort in his love, any sharing in the spirit, now these are powerful things. And yet, they're not enough to keep them from fighting. Because he says, even though you you have all these things, you're still fighting. So you you have all these things, and Paul says, keep them in mind and stop fighting. That's what he's saying here. Because there's something in the human heart so strongly inclining us towards disunity and and factions uh, and division and and contention uh, and quarreling and fighting, that even these powerful bonds that should be, should be pulling us together, aren't enough to stop us from fighting. I know common faith and common blood are probably the two strongest bonds that can hold people together. Common blood, you're the same family, the same clan. Uh, common faith, uh, you're the same religion or congregation or faith movement. And yet, now I know this will shock you, there's actually still fighting in families. <laughs> and fighting in religious congregations. <laughs> in other words, there's something in our hearts that inclines us to fighting, that even the strongest resources toward unity aren't enough to stop. And so, put this on the overhead. What Paul's uh, doing here is he takes this on the overhead, please. He takes this problem of fighting, and he brings to bear upon it the doctrine of the incarnation. He's saying, you need to understand the incarnation. And he solves this problem with the incarnation. It's amazing. So let's see how he does it. Uh, In this passage, we're going to see three things in the overhead. We're going to see, number one, Paul describes the heart that fights. Number two, then he describes the kind of heart that does not fight, uh, the kind of heart that makes peace. And then finally, he shows us how to get that kind of heart that makes peace. So we have, number one, the heart that fights. Number two, the heart that makes peace. And number three, how to get that kind of peacemaking, peaceful heart. So, number one, the heart that fights. Look carefully at, at the vocabulary here. Paul says, I want you to be of one spirit and one mind. And then he says in, in, in verse three, he says, uh, Philippians 2 verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interest of others. So first, what's the cause of fighting? Paul says here, it's selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now, I'll put this on the overhead. Uh, The Greek word for vain conceit is kinodaxia. Uh, And it literally means empty of glory or or, or glory empty. Uh, Now, what does it mean to be glory empty? Uh, And on the overhead again, among other things, it means to be starved, for validation and approval. It means not to be assured of your significance or, or in value. Uh, it means to be starving for respect and honor. It means to be cosmically insecure. It means to feel like, I don't matter. I don't count. And the Bible says this is the case of all human beings. Uh, and Paul's pointing out here that this is the reason why you fight. It's because of this. Paul says, have unity rather than vain conceit, because this is what causes disunity. Now, with vain conceit, of being glory empty is a natural human condition, uh, there's a vacuum in us. Uh, We feel like we don't have respect. We don't have honor. We need to get it. Uh, We're not even sure of our own significance, our own value. Uh, We're not sure of our own worth. Uh, We need to get it. Then this is one of the main things, Paul says, that leads to fighting uh, and quarrels and dissension. Now, this explains a lot of things. Uh, for example, it explains what I'm going to call the culture of success. Uh, Harriet Rubin, Rubin, she wrote this insightful article years ago called Success Excess. And will put it on the overhead. In it, uh, she says this. Uh, we believe that success and its cousin, money, will make us secure and important and happy. But it's time to tell the truth the high numbers of people who've used all their means to get and achieve money and power and glory, and then self-destructing. Maybe it's because when they get to this place, they don't like what they saw. Success is our way of dealing with our glory hunger. But then in the end, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give us the glory we want. And then later in the article, she interviews a, a professional counselor, Uh, And the counselor says that success for us today in our contemporary culture, it's the new drug. It's the new alcohol. Uh, Now think for a minute about a drug addict. The First time he has that first high, the drug addict is trapped. Because from then on, you're going to need more and more and more of the drug in order to get the same high. Uh, And as time goes on, you use more and more of the substance and yet get diminishing returns meaning you get less and less of the pleasure from it. Until finally, you're driven to destructive levels of use, all the while experiencing increased emptiness inside. Uh, And this counselor, she says that's exactly what the way success works. In the beginning, success, money, the first big paycheck, uh, the promotion, uh, the new account, it's a high, uh, driving you to more and more success. But as time goes on, it takes more and more of that success to get the same high. Uh, and, and, and then you, you can't get it back anymore uh, and you're working yourself to death but you're getting less and less satisfaction from it you're empty now if that's true that we're all glory starved uh, that would explain this, this culture of success it also explains another thing it would explain a lot of inner city crime because crime is often not that much about money but about respect uh, there's a hunger for respect where do you think we get the slang word, you're dissing me? Where do you think that came from? It's, it's a short for disrespect. Uh, and violence often comes from people who, who uh, it does not come from people who are assured of their value, uh, assured of their worth, but it comes from those who are not. Uh, and that's why they're lashing out. Uh, and for those of us at Third Leave, third example, those of us who tried to rear children, uh, you may have had this, ex- this experience, this phenomenon, uh, where when you punish a child for misbehavior, And instead of stopping the misbehavior, it almost seems to increase the misbehavior. But one thing that people, uh, including children, uh, want more than anything else in their life is attention. And even anger is better than being ignored. Why? Because we all need attention. Why? Because we're all starved for attention. Uh, Why is at the end of the movie Amadeus, the composer Salieri is in a living hell? It's not because his music is disliked. It's because his music has been forgotten. C.S. Lewis says, because of the nature of human beings, here's what hell really would be. Fire, he says, is actually not the worst punishment imaginable. Hell, he says, is to be eternally and utterly ignored. Now, many people would say, well, these children who want attention, and the people who lash out in violence and the people who work themselves to death in uh, this success syndrome, these are just people, you know, with low self-esteem. Uh, and, and that's because they're trying to get their approval from other people. Now, you mustn't do that. So goes the popular modern narrative. Oh, no, 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 no. Only you can bestow significance upon yourself. So you have to decide you love yourself. You have to decide you are value. You don't get validation or accreditation from anyone else. You bestow it on yourself, our so-called contemporary culture says. That's what matters. All that matters is what you think of yourself. Now, every philosopher, every sociologist, every psychologist in the world says that's BS. (laughs) That's impossible. It's simply impossible to validate yourself. Why? Because we are social beings. We are relational beings. That's why, for example, this lockdown we're in is so debilitating and destructive to community. We're not made to be lone wolves. You can't really say, well, everyone in the whole world thinks I'm a horrible monster, but that doesn't matter. I love myself. That's all that counts. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> On the overhead, we're, we are relational beings. We are social beings. And that means that only hear, hear me well. Only if you get love, approval, and esteem from someone who you esteem, will you ever have self-esteem. Think about it. Only if you get love, and approval, and esteem from someone who you esteem, you then get self-esteem. So no, you cannot just validate yourself. And yet, uh, if you're out there trying to get that from everybody else, you feel like you're on a treadmill. You feel like a hamster on a wheel, running and running and getting nowhere. The Bible has the answer for why we're glory starved. It's because we were made for God. but We've turned away from God. And because we turn away from him, there's an, there's an infinite sized vacuum now in our soul. Our souls were meant to be filled with the smile of the infinite God. It was meant to be filled with the delight of the majestic and eternal Lord. It was meant to be filled with his love. So if you turn away from the Lord, if he's not the center of your life and the source of all your joy, and you turn away, you now have this infinite-sized vacuum in your soul. And you're doing everything you can to fill it with other people's approval uh, and with awards uh, and achievements and money and success But it will never be full with that. So you're always cosmically insecure. And you're touchy and irritable. You feel like you're not getting what you you deserve, and so you fight. And that's the heart that fights. Glory starved. And the overhead, number two. What about what's the heart that does not fight? What's the heart that makes peace? And again, let's look at the structure of these sentences here. Paul says, don't be glory starved. Then look at Philippians 2, verse three. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interest of, of others. On the one hand, this word humility here—it's uh, a Greek word that also can mean uh, gentle and modest—but the context here fleshes it out a bit. So, what is biblical humility? Well, number one, it's counter—it's contrary to being glory-starved. The text says, don't be glory-starved, but rather be humble. So humility implies a kind of inner fullness. Uh, uh, so for example, in the overhead, if what makes you fight is an inner emptiness, you're trying to fill with other people's approval, then humility must mean an inner fullness. And that's why this text says, in humility, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Humility and pride are both being defined here by what you look at. What you habitually look at. If you're empty, you're habitually looking at yourself. You're always saying, am I getting mine? How am I doing? How do I look? Uh, uh, you're focused on yourself. Uh, and that's why you habitually, uh, what you're habitually looking at uh, is, makes you empty. But, but if you're full, you have the bandwidth to look away. You have the ability to look at other people. Uh, you're, you're not always thinking about yourself uh, or obsessively caring about yourself. Why? Because there's a fullness there internally. Uh, so, for example, when you're, uh, only when you're hungry do you always think about food. When you're full, you can walk by all these great restaurants in, let's say, Legacy West Shopping Center, not even be tempted because you're full. That's why Jonathan Edwards, in his famous work called uh, Charity and Its Fruits, he has a whole chapter on humility where he says there are four things that humility is opposed to. So, so here in Philippians, Paul opposes humility to being glory-starved. And Jonathan Edwards, in his famous, he's this famous pastor and theologian from 18th century America. He says, to the degree you have the humility that God can give you, and as it grows in you, As as the inner fullness of Messiah Yeshua grows within you, then there are certain marks, uh, certain traits, by which you can tell that humility is growing in you. And here's what he says. He's up on the overhead. He says, humility is opposed to four things. Self-consciousness, willfulness, scornfulness, uh, and drivenness. Let's take them in reverse order. So first of all, Jonathan Edwards says, humility is opposed to drivenness being driven now it's one thing to work hard especially in certain seasons in your life like when you're getting started out in your career but if you're habitually working hard if you work crazy hours all the time if you're constantly overworking it's a response to inner emptiness not inner fullness and many people who are super competent and super productive are so because they're trying to prove themselves to themselves and to others They're trying to fill that vacuum. So on the overhead, humility, which involves inner fullness, is opposed to drivenness, which involves inner emptiness. Secondly, humility is opposed to scornfulness. Sometimes sarcasm is a good way to make a point. Uh, And sometimes there are things that that deserve to be disdained. (laughs) There are evil things in this world that deserve to be disdained. But on the overhead. But if your habit is to always be contemptuous... If you habitually show disdain, uh, if you jeer, if you mock, uh, if you if you taunt, which by the way is what social media encourages us to do, <laughs> if you're often scorning and disdaining and taunting and being rude and disrespectful uh, and mocking and dismissing others, that's a huge sign of inner emptiness. You're putting other people down so that you can feel you're above them. You're not saying I respectfully disagree. No, you're saying, how idiotic, how stupid, what a fool, unbelievable you'd say that. And the overhead, that's the opposite of being full. Courtesy and kindness and politeness and gentleness are not only signs of being nice, they're signs of being full, not empty. And the overhead, number three, humility is not only opposed to drivenness and scornfulness, it's also opposed to willfulness. Uh, and by willfulness in the overhead. Willfulness, Edwards, means a willful person. I love this phrase, he's saying. A willful person is someone who's always right, often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> it's someone who doesn't listen, someone who never takes advice. Uh, there's always, a, 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 this, this is always a mark of a lack of humility, it's a mark of a lack of inner fullness. I've got to be right. You've got to be wrong. That's the attitude. It's a spirit of pride and arrogance that's driven by its own sense of inner emptiness. And thus to compensate, you're always trying to assure yourself of your own validation. You're always trying to credit yourself. Always desperately looking for respect and honor. And then in the overhead, number four, fourthly, humility is opposed. This is the most important one of all. Humility is opposed the self-consciousness. Now, one response of, someone, of some people who are not humble is that they're, they're self-promoting. They're the obvious people who aren't humble. They're bragging all the time. That's how they deal with their inner emptiness. So one of the ways we deal with our glory hunger is to, to become domineering, uh, to keep reminding everybody else of how great you are. Uh, and you're really, really trying not only to convince them, but to convince yourself. But the other response is very interesting. The other response to being glory starved is to hate yourself. It's to be down on yourself. It's to be self-conscious. It's to be shy. It's to be beating yourself up all the time. Uh, Because to be always noticing, well, I'm not very this. I'm not very that. Other people have got so much more than me. Other people are better. I'm not really what I should be. I suck. All of that is you're still totally self-absorbed. And to some degree we're all self absorbed. Uh, uh, that's one of the signs of pride uh, and inner emptiness. Because if you're full, you're not thinking about yourself all the time. And here on the other hand, that's why C.S. Lewis says it, my second favorite quote here, and see, in, in your Christianity, he says this humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You don't think about yourself. Why? Because you're full. You don't have this inner emptiness uh, that forces you to obsess about yourself all the time. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's not saying, oh, I'm a nothing. No, it's simply not thinking about yourself so much. Not thinking all about you. Uh, uh, Not worrying if you're this or that or if I'm better than him or better than her. And the overhead brings us to our final point, number three. How do I get a heart like that? How do you get a heart that's full? How do you get this kind of spiritual humility? How do you get a heart that makes peace instead of always fighting? And the answer is the doctrine of the incarnation. Paul saying you need to believe in and embrace this key core doctrine. And even more importantly, you need to rejoice in it. And You need to be constantly reminding yourselves of the truth of this key passage here in Philippians chapter 2. That's why he says in Philippians three verse five, uh, I'm sorry in, in verse 2, uh, Philippians two verse five, "And the relationships with one another had the same mindset as the Messiah Yeshua." Okay, so what is that mindset? And again, this is a form of a hymn, as I said, uh, that summarizes what Yeshua did for you. Uh, so this is his career, if you will. It tells us where he was uh, and where he went and where he is now. So on the overhead, number one, where he was. It says he was in the very nature of God. Uh, He had the being of God. The Greek term here is very strong. He had the same being uh, and was equal to God the Father, the text says. Uh, But he chose not to hold on to his equality, although he did have absolute equality. He was equal with the Father, equal in power, equal in omnipotence, equal in omniscience. He was equal with the Father. He had the nature of God. But then it says... He, makes him, he made himself nothing. Look at Philippians 2, verse 6. Who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So on the overhead, he was in the very nature of God, but he voluntarily chose to also take on another nature, a second nature, a human nature. And that's the mystery of the incarnation, God becoming man. And moreover, Yeshua took on the nature not only just of a human being, uh, but not a human being who was some great aristocrat, no, but a human being who was a servant. He took on the form not of a wealthy, powerful human being, but one who was simple, one who was poor, one who was vulnerable. He didn't just come down and become an ordinary human being uh, and lose his glory in that way. But then he went to the cross, to the tree, and he died for you and for me. And Philippians 2 verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But as a result, verse 9 says this, Therefore God has now highly exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that's above every name. Yeshua was one with the Father in heaven. And he humbled himself to the lowest place. Uh, uh, and somehow, because of what he did, somehow he's not got, he, he now has even more glory than he had before. Uh, more honor than he had before. That's the story of the incarnation. But here, here's what Paul's saying. Now, you've got to use this truth on yourself. How do you do that? Here's how. You have to see what happened outside of you and then use it inside of you. Okay, well, what's happened outside of you? The key word is verse 7. Uh, Paul said, uh, you fight all the time among yourselves because you're empty of glory. Uh, you're glory starved. But in verse 7, he says, for Philippians 2, verse 7, rather he, Yeshua, made himself nothing. But the literal Greek says, it doesn't say nothing. The literal Greek says he emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you and I are killing each other and killing ourselves desperately trying to fill ourselves with, with glory. We're doing everything we can to pursue glory, but it keeps eluding us. It keeps slipping through our fingers. But Yeshua was full, and yet he emptied himself of his glory. Do you know what kind of glory Yeshua had? Do you know what kind of beauty Yeshua had? The answer is no, you don't, and neither do I. I can tell you this. He was beautiful beyond bearing. He was glorious beyond our comprehension. He was full. And he emptied himself on the overhead. We're empty trying to fill ourselves. Yeshua was full and then he emptied himself voluntarily. But he didn't just come down and become an ordinary human being. Isaiah 53 tells us about the suffering servant Messiah. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that the Messiah had no beauty or majesty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. People say, well, our Jewish people despised him and rejected him. That's right. That's fulfilling the prophecy. It says he'd be despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Yeshua, he was not physically attractive. He lost all of his glory. But it wasn't just that. He went to the execution stake, to the cross. And on the cross, what does he say? Matthew 27, 46. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what's happening here? He's being eternally and utterly ignored. He's being cut off. Yeshua is embracing our worst nightmare, to be eternally and utterly ignored. What is he doing on the cross? He's taking what we deserve. We've turned away from God, and therefore what do we deserve? For God to turn away from us. And something like that ever happened to you? Someone's rejected you, someone's turned away from you, and what do you do? You typically say, well, you turned away from me, I'll turn away from you. That's just a natural human reaction. At the time, it feels very just. It feels very fair. You see, we don't center our lives on God. Even those of us who are believers. Uh, even those of us who try to be moral. Uh, uh, do, we, do we really center our lives on the Lord? No. We, we, do we, really, we don't center our lives on him. Uh, we don't do everything in our life in reference to him. We don't love the Lord with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Even though we owe him everything. Even though he keeps us alive every second of every day. We have turned away from him. And so what we deserve is for him to turn away from us. And because we have this inner vacuum uh, uh, that we're made for his love. For him to turn away from us uh, means we would just dry up and blow away. That's what we deserve. That's justice. But on the cross, Yeshua got that justice. He got what we deserve. The father turned his face away from him. Yeshua was utterly and eternally ignored. Why? Yeshua experienced and he suffered all of that so that now when you go to God, and when you say, Father, please accept me and love me uh, and give me your smile and your delight, uh, love me because of what Yeshua did. Not because of anything I have done, not because of any merit in me, but because of what Yeshua has done. When you do that, the Bible says that that tells us that God now puts your sin on Him. God the Father treats Yeshua on the cross as you deserve. And in turn, God gives you Yeshua's righteousness. Uh, it treats you uh, as Yeshua deserved. It's a great exchange. And the Bible says, therefore, we, you are now the Lord's treasured possessions. It means that in Yeshua, God now finds you more precious and more beautiful than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. Now take that into your heart. And when you do that, and that alone fills it. That and that alone, that truth, the reality, and the experience of the new life of Yeshua in the gospel that fills your heart. That's what has happened outside of you. Do you believe it? Do you accept it? Do you embrace it by faith? Have you made it real within you, inside of you, in your life? And the overhead, you need to now take this truth inside. Nobody can validate themselves. Only if you get the love and approval and esteem of someone who you esteem can you have self-esteem. the overhead, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. To be praised by someone who you would praise, to be adored by someone who you adore, that would be heaven. And that means there couldn't possibly any greater, there could not possibly be any greater basis for your identity We need greater strength than to know that you have God's approval, that you have his smile, and it's not based on you. So you're not always nervous. Otherwise, do I measure up? No, it's not like that. Well, this week I have his approval, but maybe next week I have a bad week, and and perhaps I'm going to lose his approval. No. Everyone else is like that. Everyone else's esteem is like that. There's nothing wrong with wanting other people's esteem and approval. But if you're always, but you're always going to be up and down, it'll never satisfy you like Yeshua's love will. Nothing can satisfy like Yeshua's love and acceptance and esteem will. And if you know and experience this, then you can start to live like Yeshua lived. How did he live? Do you see his trajectory? He was up in heaven, but he came down to earth. That he is exalted back to heaven. And if anything, he now he, he has more honor, and even more glory. How can this be? Because the greatest glory is a person who gives up his glory in order to save you. If anything, that's more glorious. The greatest strength is to become weak to save others. If anything, that's true strength. Now you go and do that and get that. Because the way up is down. In this, that's the upside down kingdom of God. The way to be rich is to be generous with the needy. The way to have power and influence is not to domineer over others, but to sacrifice for others. The way to be happy is to stop thinking about your own happiness and help others to be happy. And that's the way. The way to rule is to serve. But you won't be able to do that just by agreeing, yes, that's the way. You've got to know inside, within you, the smile of God, the delight of God. Yeshua became small so that you'd become big in the eyes of the Father. On the overhead, C.S. Lewis says, to be loved by God is to be delighted as an artist delights in his work, as a father delights in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory that our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Glory means good report with God, Uh, acceptance by God. Response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door upon which we've been knocking all our lives will be opened at last. Success will not open that door. Lashing out will not open that door. Telling yourself, oh, I love myself, will not open that door. But this will. Knowing Yeshua, my Lord. Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name above every name. For the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And stand and pray. Let the music team come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. We thank you today, Lord for this amazing text in Philippians 2 on the deity of the Messiah and also on his humanity. That's the mystery, Lord, of the incarnation. Yeshua, why did you leave your heavenly eternal home and humble yourself and take on flesh and blood and become a man? You did all this for me, for you, for us, so that when we repent, Lord, and we trust in you, we may have new life, eternal life, resurrection life, Help us now, Lord, to have the same humble mind and heart and spirit as you have, Lord. Uh, And it's this mindset alone that, that stops our quarreling and our bickering and our division among us. Help us to prefer our brothers and our sisters above ourselves. Help us to prefer them in honor above ourselves. Lord Yeshua, we today repent of our selfish ambition and our vain conceit. We repent of striving after our own glory. We repent of our pride and vanity, of our arrogance and, and judgmentalism. We especially, Lord, repent of our ego and self-focus, of being self-absorbed and self-obsessed and self-centered. Help us, Lord, to think of ourselves less and of others more. In a word, to be humble. To take the lowest place at the table, not to lust after the highest place. Yeshua, help us to be like you. You emptied yourself emptied yourself of your glory, you became a man, a servant, even to the point of death, even death on the execution stake. Help us likewise to die to self, and in humility to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.